We're continuing on in our series, The Gospel of God, through the book of Romans. We're in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 940, 940. Starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. We're coming to the end of a section here in the next couple of weeks. A section of Romans that began in chapter 1 and verse 19 with these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Paul has been hammering home, driving home a message again and again and again in these verses up until now, that all men, all men, all people of the earth are under the power of sin and cannot rid themselves of it, but by a gift of righteousness that God gives us through faith in Christ. That's what the goal of these and this section is and has been by Paul. He just continues to come, first against the Gentiles, and then he turns to the Jews and makes argument after argument after argument about the fact that all are under sin. This week, we're going to talk about that. That's where we're going to be, that all men are under sin. Next week, we will look at um, specifics of that. And then we're going to come to a but. We're going to come to a but in the scripture that says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. But that will not have the meaning it ought, and Paul knew that, except he spent this time driving home the fact that all are under sin. If you don't know you're under sin, you won't look for a remedy. And Paul knew that especially as he turned to the Jews, his own people, who thought just because they were of the lineage of Abraham that the promise to Abraham applied to them. And what they missed was that promise was a promise to be obtained by faith and not just because of lineage. And so this morning, we're going to be there. All are under sin. And we have a commentator who I want to read who says that this is probably the weightiest truth 
in all of Scripture and that Christianity must hold to it in the modern world. And I, I think it was written a while back, but it's even more true today. In the modern world, in the world we live in, this truth has to be held on to. The church has to hold on to it because that is not the way that modern man thinks naturally. Listen to what he goes on to say about that. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul calls the church of the living God the pillar and buttress and bulwark of truth. This is one of those truths, the truth that all men are under sin, that the church must hold up like a pillar holds up a building. There are constant pressures throughout history on persons and institutions and cultures to build life around wrong ideas. God has appointed the church of his son, Jesus, to be a mighty advocate for the truth in the world. And then he goes on to say this. Listen, listen carefully to how he puts it. One of the most important truths to uphold in the world is that all human beings, even those created in God's image, are corrupted by the power of sin. We are not morally good by nature. We are morally bad by nature. In Ephesians 2.3, Paul says, We are all by, by nature, by nature, children of wrath. The attitudes and the thoughts and the actions that deserve the wrath of God come from us by nature. In Colossians chapter 3, we are called, it says we are called sons of disobedience. We are so disposed to disobedience against God that it is though disobedience is our father. We are chips off the old block of disobedience. We don't just do sins. That's, this, that's a crucial point. We don't just do sins. We are sinful. We are under sin, as verse 9 says. Sin is like a master or a king and reigns over us and in us. Not that it coerces us to do what we don't want to do, but makes us want to do what we ought not to do. We are not innocent victims of sin. And then this, we are co-conspirators with sin against God. All men. We are co-conspirators, co-conspirators with sin against God. R.C. Sproul says it this way, that all men, that's you and I and everyone else, All men are guilty of cosmic treason. Cosmic treason against God. All men, each of us here in this room, set in one of two camps, according to the revelation, according to the oracles of God that he's revealed to us. We're in two camps. We either under sin or we are under grace. There's no middle ground here this morning. There's no middle ground in all of the world, in all of the earth. Either a man is under sin or he's under grace. All of us fit in one of those camps. That's what the scripture means. That's what Paul is saying when he says, none is righteous, 
No, not one. None is righteous. No, not one. Children are not born innocent. They're not born in some kind of neutral capacity. That's not how Scripture describes us or any man. We are in one of two camps. We are under sin or we are under grace. Another way that the Scripture says that we are in Christ or we are in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. There's the difference. We're in Adam or we are in Christ. We are under sin in Adam or we are under grace in Christ. And there is no other category by which the Bible would describe men. Unrighteous in Adam, righteous in Christ. Romans chapter 5, we're going to get there, but take a peek at it this morning. If you have your Bibles, just turn over a page or so. And listen again. We'll, we'll unpack this in greater dimension in coming days. We'll spend time, a lot of time here, I assume, in this text. But just listen to how Paul describes those two camps, in, Christ, or in Adam or in Christ. Some would say that Christ is the second Adam. You can take it that way. We're either in the first Adam or we're in the second Adam. But here's what the scripture says. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not the result of that one man's sin is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. For by... The one man's disobedience, the disobedience of Adam, the many were made sinners. All men are under sin. So the hope of the gospel is then that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We are either unrighteous in Adam or righteous in Christ this morning. Those are the two things. And Paul uses an argument now, as you go back to Romans chapter 2, from the Old Testament to drive it home. He is still really zeroing in on his Jewish counterparts. Romans chapter 1 was for the Greeks, for the rest of the world. But he's continuing now to build the case. He's bringing it to a conclusion here in Romans chapter 3. And we'll finish it next week. But he is bringing to conclusion that you aren't excluded, my fellow Jews. 
you're in that camp as well. The promise that you thought meant salvation to all ethnic Jews, you got it wrong. He's already started to make that, but here he brings it home and he says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, all men are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on and continues that bit of, a, of, a, of an argument. And what he basically does is he sews together six Old Testament texts. That's what you see there in that section. It is, it is six Old Testament texts that he chains together to, to finish his argument. It's a masterful way to come to his own people who believed that the Old Testament were the oracles of God, the revelation of God. And so he went to the very thing they trusted in and showed them that all men are under sin, even Jews, even ethnic Jews. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at that argument a bit, but I don't want to go very far. We just want to look at the very first verse, the argument really that none is righteous, no, not one. Next week we'll unpack more of it, but I want us to center there. I want us to, again to get into focus, to understand that what Paul is saying, you're in one of two camps, the unrighteous or the righteous. Unrighteous in Adam, righteous in Christ. And he goes to Psalm 14, the, the text that you see there, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, comes right out of Psalm 14. Listen to what the psalm says. In verse 1, the last part of verse 1, it says, there is none who does good. The psalmist declares, there's none who does good. And he goes on a little later and says, there is none who does good, not even one. In other words, you could say there is none who does good. There's none who is righteous. No, not one. Not even one. And he lifts it to his Jewish counterparts. There it is. But, 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 he goes on later in verse 5. I think it's where some of the confusion came in for the Jewish people because down in verse 5 of Psalm 14 it says, there they are in great terror. He's speaking of those who are not righteous, no, not one. But then he goes on to say, there they are in great terror for God is with the generation of the righteous. What does he mean by that? What's this reference to the generation of the righteous? Is that all ethnic Jews? That's, that's how they read those psalms. They read them wrong, I believe. Paul tells them that in Romans. But you see, that's there. And so how do we, how do we reconcile that? How, do we, how does Paul come against them to say, you're, the generation of the righteous, you're misunderstanding what that is? He does it by going to other texts and as we go on through this lineage of text, he sewed six together. He, he goes to the book of Isaiah a bit later in this 
string of events in verses 15, 16, and 17. And he quotes Isaiah 59. And in Isaiah 59, let me, let me read it to you, verses 7 and 8. It says, Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Whose thoughts? Who is he speaking to there? There is no doubt who he's speaking to there. That is an indictment of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people. It says in the beginning of that psalm, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, and it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That was written specifically to the Jews. And so as he strings this together, we come back to the question again, then who are the generation of the righteous that it talks about in Psalm 14? Again, the ethnic Jews would have taken that, I think taken that wrongly and thought that pertains to ethnicity. We're the generation, we're God's people, we're the the ones that the promise of salvation came to all of ethnic Jews. And I think what we have to see in that is those who are the generation of the righteous, the psalmist knew who the generation of the righteous were. They were the ones who embraced the promise by faith. As I read to you, as I said to you when we were in the prayer time this morning, the the idea that what does an Old Testament ethnic Jew look like whose heart has been circumcised inwardly. What does he look like? He looks like the Psalms, what's written in the Psalms. And so here, what's written in the Psalms is written from a heart that has been circumcised inwardly. The generation of the righteous were not all of ethnic Judaism, but rather those who embraced the promise by faith, those whose hearts were circumcised by faith. One man has written this, whenever you have someone called righteous, this is important, whenever you have someone called righteous in the Old Testament, it is not because they were not sinners, but because God had mercifully intervened in their lives and given them the grace of forgiveness to overcome their natural inclination to sin and set them right with God. What is that a description of? But their hearts were circumcised by faith. They embraced the promise by faith. David's an example of it. A couple of weeks ago in our prayer time, we lifted Psalm 51 to you. But again, a prayer of one whose heart's been circumcised by faith. A true Jew. Yes, a Jew by ethnicity, but his ethnicity is not what David depended on. He depended on the fact that God had had circumcised his heart, that he was trusting the promises by faith. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 51 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Why did God need to have mercy on him? Because he knew no one is righteous. No, not one, including him. And so his only hope was that God would have mercy on him. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And again and again and again, as you read the Psalms, you, you, 
you hear declarations, you're the God of my salvation. And it's one who is trusting the promises. Trusting the promises of God. One who has, if you will, the faith of Abraham. Abraham, their father. The one to whom the promise was given that he was going to, going to be the father of a, of a lineage, of a seed that would save and be a blessing to a people. And Abraham, it says, in 15, Genesis chapter 15, 6, and then Paul quotes it in Romans 4, 3, that Abraham did what? Abraham obeyed the law, had the law? No. Abraham was circumcised outwardly because those were the things in weeks past we've talked about. Those were the arguments. They said, we have the law. God gave us the law. And Paul comes back and says, you didn't live the law. And they said, but we've been circumcised. And Paul says, circumcision is not mere outward. It's an inward thing. And an outward is just a declaration of an inward reality. That's what it should be. And so they bring those arguments. Abraham didn't say, we have the law. Abraham didn't say, I've been circumcised. He didn't trust in those things. What, he said, what it says is Abraham believed God. He believed God. He believed the promise of God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Where did his righteousness lie in his ability to keep the law? No. On the fact that he'd been outwardly circumcised? No. It, it, it relied upon and and laid upon the fact that he believed the promise of God. He didn't understand how that promise would work its way out. As I said this morning, the Old Testament saints who, who looked to the God of their salvation, they, they believed the promise that God was going to save them, provide a way that their sins could be forgiven. They knew they had sin. David knew he had sin. He knew that in himself he wasn't righteous, but somehow God planted faith within their hearts to believe that God would save them. You see how much better it is for us on this side of the cross? How much more of a blessing it is to live when we live now? Because we can understand how God could do that. We can understand the full picture of that story. They just trusted the promise. They trusted it by faith. Today, we too the same, but we see how it works. We see the way in which Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 can be a reality. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God has provided a righteousness for the unrighteous. That's the most glorious news in all of the world, that God has provided righteousness for the unrighteous. It's the most glorious news in all of the world provided one thing. That we realize our unrighteousness. That's why Paul kept hammering again and again and again 
that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. Because until they were willing to acknowledge that, they wouldn't look to a remedy. They wouldn't look to the remedy that Christ provided. What we're going to do over the next weeks is we're going to look again and again how he accomplished that righteousness, how he provided that righteousness, how he was able to have a righteousness that he could give to us to be ours so that a people who were unrighteous could be righteous and God can continue to be just. It's a glorious message. It's a glorious story. It's how people under sin can move under grace. My hope this morning is that God is showing us our unrighteousness in ourselves, that we're willing to acknowledge that in ourselves. And today, if you're here and and God is troubling you with that, that's the most wonderful thing in all the world because you're now candidate for the remedy. And some of you maybe know of earlier days in your life, you can remember when you were troubled about your unrighteousness. And God clearly revealed it to you. And you ran to the remedy. That's what Paul is doing. That's the argument that he's making again and again and again. Run to the remedy. And the remedy is Christ. It's why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's why Paul heralded the gospel. It's why we should herald the gospel. Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed. We're going to sing this morning as we conclude a song that we sang already. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's a point and a line in the next verses that says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. That's a righteousness that comes from God. And that's a righteousness that God is willing to give any man, any man who's under sin and knows it and runs to the remedy. That's a glorious message. It's a glorious hope. Let's sing of it this morning. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness fails, when darkness fails His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
All of the ground is sinking sand His oath is covenant His blood support me in the whelming flood When all around my soul gives way He then is all my hope and stay When He shall come When He shall come with trumpet sound Oh may I then in Him be found Dressed in His righteousness alone Faultless to stand before the throne On Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground is sinking sand All of the ground is sinking sand On Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground sinking sand all of the ground is sinking sand let's pray together this morning Father your word to us is clear that all men are either in Adam and under sin or in Christ and righteous. Father, I pray that you mercifully would help us, help us to see that no man is righteous, no, not one in himself. And our only hope is a righteousness outside of us, a righteousness that you provide for us in the work of your Son. We're grateful that he who had no sin became sin for us, that we might become righteous, that we might have the righteousness of God, which we are grateful you declare is enough and the only thing that will be acceptable to you. So help us, Lord. May the sting of our sin drive us to the Savior, drive us to the righteousness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.